Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Well, this morning we are going to be uh, concluding our Advent series on celebrating Jesus, God's indescribable gift. And we're going to see how this story uh, of Joseph and his brothers in Genesis concludes. And I'm guessing that most of us are polling for them to work it all out and all end up back together because that's the kind of story we like. I mean, we like the Hollywood ending in the fairy tale where everyone lives happily ever after. And I'm guessing that one of the reasons that we want our stories to end that way is because deep down we sense that we are not made for the brokenness and the fractures and the conflicts that we experience in our relationships, both vertically and horizontally in our relationship with God. And so we deeply long for resolution and for reconciliation in our relationships. But at the same time, we also know that reconciliation is usually not easy. It requires deep personal change through repentance and a commitment to rebuilding trust where it has been broken, as well as also often extending forgiveness to those who have wronged us. So in short, we know that reconciliation can be costly, which is why we like it in movies, but we often allow relationships in our own lives to remain cold and distant and broken for years and years without ever addressing them. Which is perhaps why in Genesis, neither Joseph nor his brothers initiate reconciliation. Their reunion is brought about by events that are almost entirely out of control. Ultimately, it's God who initiates reconciliation for them and for us. And so this morning, we're going to look at God's gift of reconciliation for the sinful. So this will conclude our Advent series. We looked at a number of these things uh, already. But this morning, God's gift of reconciliation for the sinful. The story of reconciliation between Joseph and his brothers actually runs all the way from Genesis 42 to Genesis 45. And we don't have time to read that entire narrative. So we're going to pick up the reading actually in Genesis chapter 44. But because we're going to do that, we need to summarize the sections that we're skipping. And so we're going to begin this morning actually with a review, which is not technically a point. So it's point zero, a review, before we actually get into uh, our other points. But uh, before we get into the points, and actually before we even get to Genesis 44, I want to open us with a word of prayer. So let's bow together and pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word that holds out the promise of and your work of reconciliation for us as a sinful people. And so, Lord, we do pray that you would open our eyes and open our ears to hear this wonderful message of reconciliation this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week, uh, Joseph was still in prison at the end of Genesis chapter 40 because the chief cupbearer forgot about him. And a couple years pass before Pharaoh has two dreams of his own. So this is one last instance of double dreams in the Joseph story, but there's no one there to interpret them. And so finally, this jars the memory of the chief cupbearer who thinks, oh yeah, I remember this guy in prison who interpreted my dream. And so Pharaoh summons Joseph, and Joseph is enabled to correctly interpret Pharaoh's dream by the power of God. And it's very evident that it's God's power that gives Joseph this ability to interpret Pharaoh's dreams and the events of that dream. 
the events of that dream, which will be that there will be seven years of plentiful harvests followed by seven years of severe famine in the land. So only God could know that. But not only does Joseph accurately interpret the meaning of these dreams, he also offers a plan of action to stockpile grain during the plentiful years in order to build up reserves for the lean years. And this display of wisdom on Joseph's part leads Pharaoh to elevate Joseph to the second in command over the entire land of Egypt, setting the stage for the fulfillment of Joseph's own dreams of his brothers coming to bow before him. So the seven years of plenty eventually pass and the famine strikes. And the famine eventually reaches the land of Canaan where Joseph's brothers and his father Jacob are still residing. And so with the pantry becoming bare in Egypt, or I mean in Canaan, where Joseph's brothers and Jacob are, he sends his sons down to get food to the only stocked grocery store around, which is going to be in Egypt, to stand in this bread line and to get food before they all starve to death. But we also observe very early in Genesis chapter 42 that Jacob is still playing favorites with his sons because he refuses to allow Benjamin, his youngest son, and his only remaining son of his beloved Rachel, the only full brother, full-blooded brother of Joseph, to go down with the rest of the brothers for fear that some harm might come to him. We read this in verse 4 of chapter 42. And Jacob could not bear to have anything happen to Benjamin. And so he sends Joseph's other brothers, with the exception of Benjamin, down to Egypt. When they arrive there, they appear before Joseph and they bow before him, fulfilling Joseph's earlier dreams of his brothers bowing before him. But after 20 years or so, his brothers don't recognize him, but he recognizes his brothers. But rather than standing up and, you know, saying something like, how do you like me now to his brothers? Or see, I told you so. I told you you'd bow before me. Or boasting like he did when he was a teenager, when he first had those dreams. Rather than doing any of that, Joseph has now learned patience. And he's learned character. And he really seeks not revenge, but to discover whether his brothers have changed Joseph desires reconciliation, but he knows that real, meaningful, lasting reconciliation can only happen if there's been a change in the hearts and attitudes of his brothers. Remember that the last time they saw Joseph, they hated him, and they wanted to kill him, and they could not speak a word of shalom to him. They could not speak a word of peace to Joseph. And so now... He wants to know if his brothers have changed, and so he's going to conduct some research. So that's actually our first point. He's going to conduct research to find out what's in the hearts of his brothers. But we're still not ready to read Genesis chapter 44 yet, because his research actually starts way back in chapter 42 when he first encounters his brothers. Joseph interrogates them, he accuses them of being spies, and he throws them in prison. And his brothers, of course, deny that they're spies, and they speak of their father and another brother who still remains in the land of Canaan, where they've come from. And so in order to verify this story that they're not spies, and this account that they have another brother who's in the land of Canaan, Joseph decides to hold one of the brothers in custody. And the only way they're going to get this brother out is if they go home and bring back their youngest brother, Benjamin, that they've spoken of. And the brother that Joseph decides to keep in custody is Simeon. And perhaps the reason he's going to keep Simeon in custody is because Joseph overhears and learns for the first time in listening to his brothers talk when they're in his presence that Reuben, the firstborn of the brothers, actually worked to protect Joseph, that he didn't want any harm to happen to him. 
And this causes Joseph to break down and weep. And so Simeon, being the next youngest, is perhaps regarded as being responsible or in charge during that time. And so Joseph keeps Simeon behind. Perhaps that's the reason. But in any event, Simeon is kept behind and he sends the rest of them back home with grain sacks full of grain in order to ensure that they have food during the famine, but also to ensure that his father Jacob and his brother Benjamin get groceries. But at the same time, he puts all the money back in their sacks so they leave Egypt with all their food for free. And then they head back to Egypt. So when they get back home, they have to explain where Simeon is. So for a second time, Jacob's sons return with one of his sons missing and with a bunch of money. This is exactly what happened when they sold Joseph as a slave. So at this point, Jacob's probably getting a little suspicious of what keeps happening to his sons when they disappear with the rest of their brothers. And so he refuses, he vows that Benjamin will not return to Egypt. He counts Joseph is gone now and Simeon is gone now. Because he's not sending Benjamin back to get Simeon out of prison. But they eventually run out of food again. And they have to go back down to Egypt in order to survive. And so this time Judah steps forward and offers himself as a pledge for Benjamin's safety. And so this time Benjamin goes with the rest of the brothers They go with a present for the man, which is the only way they know how to refer to Joseph because they don't know who he is. They take a present for the man, and they also take all the money that Joseph sent back with them the first time to Egypt. And so this time, when they get to Egypt, Joseph summons them all to come to his house. And so they're fearing the worst. They think that Joseph found out about the money they got away with the first time, and he intends to make them slaves now in the land of Egypt. Ironically, the same thing that Joseph did actually experience by them selling him to Egypt. But rather than doing that, instead, Joseph throws them a huge party and a banquet, and he seats them around the table in chronological order of their birth. Okay, so they're they're already unsettled that they got all their money back on the first trip, and now they don't know what to make of, of this whole stage situation of being surrounded around the table in chronological order of their birth, and Benjamin gets five times as much as anybody else during this banquet. Do you see what Joseph is doing here? Now, it could be that he's just so happy to see his brother Benjamin that he delights in lavishing Benjamin with all of these good gifts. But he's also recreating a special coat scenario. See, once again, this favorite son of their father, the son of Rachel, is getting preferential treatment and better treatment of all the others. How are they going to respond this time? Are they going to respond the same way that they did toward him with the same kind of cruelty, jealousy, and hatred? Well, in order to find out once and for all, Joseph conspires with his steward in Genesis chapter 44. And we're going to read the first 17 verses now. So if you have your Bibles, you can have them open to Genesis 44. Uh, The text will also be displayed here on the screen. We're going to read the first 17 verses. Beginning in verse 1. And then he, meaning Joseph, commanded the steward of the house, fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up! Follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, 
Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. And when he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. And they said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we had found in the mouths of our sacks, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die. And we also will be my Lord's servants. And he said, Let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. And he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. And then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there, and they fell before him to the ground. And Joseph said to them, What is this deed that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Okay, so... In the next morning, after this party, they head home. And just imagine how exuberant they must have been at how well things have gone for them this second time that they've been down to Egypt. They get to have this big party with this major leader in Egypt who sends them home with sacks full of grain. Simeon is out of prison. Benjamin is safe. How happy their father is going to be that all of this has worked out so well. But then... Eventually, they hear the sound of sirens coming up behind them. You ever been pulled over and have no idea why you're getting pulled over? This must have been how Joseph's brothers felt. I mean, what's the problem, officer? Well, turns out one of the cups of silver from my master's house is missing. A silver cup. Don't miss the irony in that. That's the exact same material that they originally sold Joseph as a slave for. And so, of course, they're shocked, but they're confident that none of them have it. They didn't take it. They brought the money back from the first trip, so why would they steal anything now? And so they vow that whoever sack it's found in, that person will die, because certainly it's not going to be found in anybody's sack. So imagine how horrified they are when Benjamin gets busted for theft, and they all have to go back to appear before Joseph. And when they appear before Joseph, he tells the brothers that they can all go home without serving even a moment of community service, except Benjamin, whose sack the silver cup was in, has to stay behind as a slave. And this creates the perfect scenario now for Joseph's research. Do you see that? This is a perfect scenario. This is how Ian DeGuid and uh, Matt Harmon describe the situation now. That he would give the brothers, Joseph would, a perfect opportunity to dispose of this unloved favorite. They could go home with the food they needed, without the brother they hated, and with an unimpeachable excuse. The situation was beautifully crafted to provide the perfect parallel to the brother's earlier sin. The favored brother, Benjamin, 
would be left in Egypt as a slave while the other brothers went home happily to their father. See, Joseph hasn't done any of this because he's interested in revenge. He's arranged all of, this, all of these circumstances so he can discover what is in the hearts of his brothers. Is there hatred for Benjamin like there had been before with him? Or have they changed? What will his research reveal? And specifically, is he going to see any repentance? So that's the second point, repentance. Let's continue our reading then, in, beginning in verse 18 of chapter 44. And then Judah went up to him and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a younger brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. And then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. And then you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, Go again, buy us a little food, we said, We cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. And then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die, and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers." For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. And so when the brothers come before Joseph again, it is Judah who speaks for them. And notice that Judah doesn't offer any kind of defense. He doesn't argue a case for justice. He simply casts himself upon Joseph for mercy. We read earlier in verse 16, Judah says, What can we say? How can we justify ourselves? God has found out the guilt of his servants. Now, I, he's not referring here to the silver cup that's been found. Because even if one of them had taken it, which they didn't, Benjamin himself would be the guilty party there. When he says this, he's referring to the earlier guilt of selling Joseph as a slave, which they now regard they are being fittingly punished for by themselves becoming slaves in Egypt. How much more of a fitting punishment could there be than that? And through this entire famine, they've had this gnawing sense that God is finding out their earlier sin of selling their younger brother Joseph as a slave. And that's what Judah's concluding here. But in response to Judah's confession of sin and guilt and the notion that all the brothers become slaves, Joseph insists that only Benjamin is going to be left behind. The rest of them can go. Again, creating this scenario. But Judah refuses to allow that to happen. 
He steps forward in this private audience with Joseph. And he explains to him that he had made a pledge to his father for Benjamin's safety. Judah made a pledge. The same word used for the pledge that he gave to Tamar for his one night stand with her that we read back in Genesis chapter 38. But that pledge was a self-serving pledge on Judah's part. This pledge is self-sacrificing, given for the protection of his younger brother and the protection of his father. As we hear Judah step forward to take the place of his brother so that his brother can go, go free. Listen to what he says in verse 33. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. That's Judah. Judah, who had earlier proposed to sell his brother Joseph as a slave. Remember, that was Judah's idea back in Genesis 37 to sell Joseph as a slave. And now he stands before that same brother that he sold as a slave and he makes another proposal. But his proposal this time is to become a slave himself in order to protect those that he loves. That is genuine change. And that is genuine repentance. Where there once had been hatred, there now is love. And that's what Joseph sees. And one of the truths that we learn here is that there can be no meaningful reconciliation with God or with others without repenting and committing to change. There just can't be. Do you know why relationships need reconciliation? Because they're broken. And they're broken because there's been sin involved. Otherwise, we're not talking about reconciliation. The relationships are fine. The reason we need reconciliation because sin breaks those relationships. And where there's sin, there needs to be repentance in order for reconciliation to occur. And is there brokenness in some of your relationships right now? Do you need reconciliation in relationships in your life? And has your sin broken some of those relationships for which you need to repent and commit to change because there can't be any reconciliation until you're willing to repent and commit to change. Perhaps you're hoping that your relationships with God and with others that you've wounded can just be fine without you repenting. That they can be mended and restored and trust can be rebuilt just because you feel bad but you're not really going to change. Don't fool yourself. Genuine reconciliation can't happen apart from repentance. Reconciliation without repentance is like painting over mold on a wall. Outwardly, it might look fine, but underneath it remains unchanged and it remains toxic. You can't do it. In order for real reconciliation to happen in relationships, there has to be repentance for wrongs that you've committed. Now, of course, this repentance and this change is a process. It doesn't mean it's going to happen overnight, but small steps need to be made. Even Judah's change didn't happen overnight. When Judah makes this pledge to his father, he doesn't come clean and say, you know what, we sold Joseph as a slave to Egypt. He never says that. He doesn't come clean right away. Change is generally a process 
But in order for reconciliation to happen, you have to commit to that process of repentance and change. And with Judah's words here, Joseph knows that the brother who sold him into slavery has become a brother willing to assume slavery for those he loves. He who once acted like an enemy is now acting like a true brother and a true son. And it overwhelms Joseph. He can't hold it anymore. He breaks down and he reveals himself to his brothers, leaving them in stunned silence. But this revelation opens the door to reconciliation, which is the last point. So let's read the first five verses of Genesis 45. Just the first five verses. And then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. And so Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. And so we see that not only was repentance necessary in order for reconciliation to happen between Joseph and his brothers, but forgiveness on the part of Joseph was also necessary. You see, there's actually two things that have to happen for reconciliation to happen. Reconciliation requires both repentance on the part of the wrongdoer and forgiveness on the part of the one wronged. It takes two things. And without both of those things occurring, there is no reconciliation. It takes repentance on the part of the wrongdoer and forgiveness on the part of the one wronged. Note Joseph's forgiveness here. He extends an invitation for his brothers to come near in verse 4. No more distance. That's, that's the language of forgiveness. No more distance. No more coldness. No more detachment. Come near to me, please. And then he sends everyone else out of the room. You know what he's doing there? The Egyptians are never going to know what his brothers had done to him. He is not going to drag down the reputation of his brothers for what they've done in anybody else's eyes. That's the language of forgiveness. That's the heart of, forg of forgiveness. He's not seeking punishment for them on any kind from anybody. He protects them, and then he reassures them because people who are guilty of wronging other people often have a hard time believing in the reality of forgiveness, that the one they've wronged really has no intention to harm them anymore. And because of this difficulty of believing in the reality of forgiveness, he reassures them in verse 5 when he says, Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. That's the language of forgiveness as well. Don't punish yourself. You're forgiven. Notice also that forgiveness does not mean denying that something is sinful or something wrong was done to you. It doesn't mean that. Joseph acknowledges, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. He doesn't cover that over. They really did sin against him. And when you're forgiving someone, it doesn't mean you have to 
deny that a wrong was done to you. In fact, forgiveness implies that you've been wronged and sinned against. If you haven't been wronged and sinned against, what is there to forgive? Forgiveness means precisely forgiving a wrong that was done against you or a sin that was done against you. It doesn't mean denying that, but it does mean letting go of the desire to seek revenge or to punish so that reconciliation can truly happen. Now, no doubt, Joseph is empowered to do this because he sees the goodness of God behind the sinful actions of his brothers. Three times he mentions it was God who sent him ahead for good. Verse 5, and then again in verses 7 and 8. It was God who sent him ahead for good. See, Joseph doesn't believe in blind fate or bad luck. He believes in a divine providence that extends even to painful experiences and even to the sinful choices that others make against you. But God can use all of those things for good. He can use all of those things for good. And that undoubtedly empowers Joseph and can empower us to forgive others when we recognize that God's good hand is continuing to guide and direct. But another thing that empowers us to forgive others is remembering our own need for forgiveness. And that leads us to this important question this morning. What does any of this have to do with Christmas? What does any of this have to do with Advent? Everything. It has everything to do with Christmas or Advent because Christmas's grand announcement is an announcement of reconciliation. Hark! Right, that means listen. Hark! The herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild. What's next? God and sinner reconciled. That's the Christmas declaration. We see so much of what's anticipated in the birth and the work of Jesus here in this story. Joseph and his brothers didn't initiate their reunion and their reconciliation. Just as God initiates reconciliation between Joseph and his brothers, God initiates our reconciliation with him by sending Jesus into the world to be born. That's God taking initiative for our reconciliation, not us. God takes the first step. But in addition to that, Judah the substitute also points us to Jesus. Because Jesus wasn't just born into the world. He died as a substitute in the place for sinners. Judah's willingness to suffer as a substitute for a sin that he did not commit, stealing the silver cup, so that the rest, so that they all could be forgiven for sins that they did commit, points us to the greater son of Judah, who suffered for sins he did not commit so that you and I could be forgiven for all of the sins that we did commit. But not only does Judah the substitute point us forward to Jesus, Joseph's forgiveness points us to Jesus because we're a people that have trouble believing in the reality of God's forgiveness toward us. We have trouble believing that God's forgiveness is deeper and better than our forgiveness for each other is. We have trouble believing that God's grace and forgiveness extends to us even in our worst sins and covers the most heinous things about us. And we're left believing that somehow we have to atone for our own sin and guilt. And so, like Joseph, Jesus calls us and he says, come near. 
come near. Don't be distressed or angry because of your sins. I've offered myself on the cross and my blood has blotted out all of your transgressions. I've cleansed you. Don't be distressed. The good news of the gospel is that our sins do not render void the work of Jesus on the cross. Your sins and guilt were the reason for Jesus' work on the cross. They don't cancel it out. They're the reason that he came and bled and died. And we need to believe that God's grace is not just for the victims and is not just for those who have been damaged. It is for them. But it's also for the victimizers and for those who do the damage. That's the scandal of grace, isn't it? That God is at work here not just for Joseph, the one sinned against, but for his brothers too, the ones who are the victimizers. God's grace is for people like me and you, who are both victims of being sinned against, but also victimizers of damaging those around us. That's who God's grace is for. If your sin wasn't real and your guilt wasn't real, then you don't need Jesus. You need Jesus precisely because you're sinful and guilty. But that's the good news of the gospel. Listen, we need to be as quick to celebrate our reconciliation with God as we are to confess our sins before a watching world. Because if we're just dour and defeated and depressed and distressed over our sin, how are we going to proclaim joy to the world? How are we going to convince people that the gospel is good news? That we're not condemned, that we are reconciled to God, and that's true and that's real. And that our distress over our sin is displaced and overcome by joy in the truth of the gospel and God's forgiveness and his reconciliations. That's what's ultimately true. Yes, my sin is true. Yes, I need forgiven. And you know what? The good news is my sin is forgiven. And we've been reconciled through the birth and the life and the death of Jesus. He assures us of our forgiveness and reconciliation in his word and in sacrament by drawing us near to himself to this table, a table that reminds us that while Judah the substitute and Joseph's forgiveness points us to Jesus, they're not our true saviors. Judah's not our savior. Joseph is not our savior because neither Judah nor Joseph shed their blood or died for our sins. Only Jesus can do that because only Jesus is God's gift of reconciliation for the sinful. And so we need to look to him. We need to focus our eyes, not on our own sin and unworthiness, but on the righteousness of Christ and his worthiness for us. That's what we're celebrating this time of year. So we need to look to him and rejoice in our reconciliation and count as the greatest gift this season. God's gift of hope for the dysfunctional, God's gift of healing for the broken, God's gift of comfort for the suffering, and God's gift 
of reconciliation for the sinful. We need to celebrate Jesus, God's indescribable gift. Let's pray. Our gracious God in heaven, we're thankful, grateful for the indescribable gift that you've given us. Lord, we are dysfunctional, we are broken, we are suffering, and we are sinful. But yet you've given us hope and healing and comfort and reconciliation all through the gift of your son, Jesus. We look to him and we delight and we rejoice in the joy that you have given to us to announce to the world. In Jesus' name, amen.